He wanted them then presented to his bank manager and an IRS tax man that he knew very well. Now why on earth would he want this or request this? Well, being the cynic that he was toward the end of his life, while he was reflecting on the goals which had directed the best years that he had lived, he said, I finally came to the place where one day I suddenly thought I had worked hard all my life only to hand over most of my cash to the bank and the tax man. And so when I kicked the bucket, I might as well go on working for them. Think about that. Now, as, as you wrestle with this, this, this um, kind of opening uh, illustration here, you may think, that's a little morbid, Pastor. Why would you start with that? Well, that's, that's because I think that's really what Jesus is having us to consider this morning in our question. So would you look with me in Matthew 16? And we're going to be looking at verse 26 We'll be backing up a lot in this passage, but we're going to read just verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that this question from your son Jesus would resonate within our hearts and minds. That it would echo there for a long time. That it would constantly go with us throughout our lives. Help us, Lord, to understand it today. Show us what you mean and how we may answer you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to make this statement. This is a very important question. If we're to look back into the annals of time, we would see perhaps thousands and thousands upon thousands of philosophers, uh, songs, poems, books, and even movies asking similar questions as they wrestle with the essence of life. However, no question exists like this in terms of meaning, in terms of pointedness, in terms of importance. Not only because of the question itself, but because of who it is that asked it. And what context he asked it in. So as we seek to hear Jesus' question this morning, that we may really hear it and digest it and wrestle with it, and, and that we might have it answered in our own hearts in order that we may live out that answer as we should as His followers. Let's unpack the context of this question. Let's step back and look at how this question came to be. For it, It's almost like it, it tees up the question for us very nicely where we should not be able to miss the ball. So we're going to look at, first of all, the answer behind the question. What is the answer behind the question? And then we're going to also look at the question that we must answer. So let's look at the answer behind the question first. Verses, or chapter 16, verses 13 through 23 is what we're going to be diving into. Now, to set this up, the disciples had been following Jesus. Um, I, I say this all the time because I think it's important that we realize that this is historical narrative. 
They have been with Jesus. They've been walking with Jesus. They've been hearing Jesus. They've been seeing Jesus' miracles. And and, and literally, they're just in awe. They're in awe of this man who, who just walked up to them, basically, his disciples, and said, come, follow me. And as they're following, all these things are going on. He's interacting with people. He's interacting with the religious leaders. He's doing all these things. And so when we come to verse 13, now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he asked them this serious question. Who do you say that I am? Now, there's all sorts of answers here. And the disciples, I, you know, I pictured in my mind, it's kind of like when I was a youth pastor and there's this youth group there and you ask a question, there's all these popcorn answers are just dead silence, either one, one of the two. It's dead silence or popcorn. So here are the popcorns coming because these guys are really thinking about this question. And they say, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. And others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So he looks at them. You can look ahead at verse 21 in the text. <clears throat> From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now, in Peter's mind, you can imagine all the things that are going through his mind. He's hearing these things, and it it says here, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples. He began to explain it. He began to to point it out to them. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. You see, heroes don't die like that, Jesus. The Messiah, are you kidding me? You're the Son of God. What on earth are you talking about? And so just like Peter does, you can see him do it. He takes Jesus, probably comes over to him. He says, Jesus, come. Let's go over here and talk. Come on. Come with me. Come with me. You know, Jesus, are you crazy? What are you doing? What in the world are you doing? The Scripture says he rebukes Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. From Peter's at the disciples' perspective, it just can't be right. Not Jesus, not the Messiah, not the Son of God. But there's something deeper at work here. Now, C.S. Lewis alludes to it in, in the Chronicles of Narnia with Aslan. When Aslan is put on the table, it's sacrificed and comes back to life. He talks about a deeper magic which the witch in the story did not know. This is a deeper truth at work here. That was the plan. That it was the necessity. That it was the requirement of a holy and living God. The reality is is that we cannot reach paradise on our own merit. The holy creator God will not let sin go unpunished. If we were to bore all of our sins we would still suffer judgment in the flames of hell because we cannot pay the price that we've sinned against the holy God. So therefore, God sacrificed Jesus. He sent Jesus as the believer's perfect substitute. Listen to Romans 5, 6-12. Listen to these words. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to dare even to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So what this text tells us is is that Jesus had to die to restore the relationship that we have with the Father, the Creator, only Jesus could mend that. And, and it was, and it was um, uh, promised from all eternity. You see it in, in Genesis. And then you see it on through the Scriptures. As you continue reading even here in Romans 5, the saving work of Christ consists of obedience that required um, of the first Adam one, and it consists of the obedience like that required of the first Adam. But Christ's obedience was not simply a refrain from eating of the tree in the garden. Instead, Christ's suffering meant, meant he had to be obedient to the cross. Christ had to take on the form of a man and physically die. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so understand, understand this. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. It was his destiny. Uh, Jesus had to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. It was his destiny. Jesus had to be killed. And then it tells us that on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. The question is, is do you believe that to be true? Have you put your faith in Jesus, the Christ? Think about the love. Think about the sacrifice. Think about the grace that he brings to us. The obedience that he has. Well, when you even think about all this, Peter could not get his mind around it. He just couldn't. He, he couldn't get the thoughts to go that this would have to happen to Jesus. This one he had been with. The one he had saw do so many incredible things. The one that he loved so dearly. And so Jesus responds to him with some of the most striking words in all of Scripture. Look at verse 23. He turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Again, we could spend a lot of time here, but, but pertinent to the original question, why did Jesus say this? In the Scripture, there is always a dichotomy. 
Walking in the Spirit versus walking in the flesh. Keeping your eyes on things above or keeping your eyes on things below. Walking the narrow path or walking the wide path. Here it is setting your mind on the things of God versus the things of man. And so Jesus was exposing this dichotomy. And he's asking the question to Peter and to us, how are you walking? Where are your eyes? What path are you on? What do you set your mind upon? We need to ask those questions. We need to wrestle with them. But these questions really point us ahead to this main question that we're going to look at here in just a few minutes. Because that question flows out of this context. So as we think about our second point here, remember, no question exists like this in terms of meaning, in terms of pointedness, in terms of importance. Not only because of the question itself, but because, again, of, of he who asked it and the context he asked it in. So let's look now at the question we must answer in verses 24 through 28. Let, let's recap briefly. By revelation that came... And only comes from the Father, Peter declared who Jesus was and is, the Messiah, the Son of God. In light of that, Jesus further revealed the great hidden mysterious truth of the eternal plan of our triune God, promised in the garden and in the covenants and by the prophets. That the Messiah, the Son of God, must die for the sins of those who would believe and would raise again from the dead. Peter, in hearing these things, rebukes Jesus. He takes, at least he took him aside, you know, and didn't rebuke him in front of everyone. And then Jesus rebukes Peter back. Notice again, think about what he said. Peter, you're thinking satanically. You are thinking satanically. We often wrongly, too often associate wrongly sat- the, the aspect of satanic uh, with too much of the creepy goth- uh, gothic culture. But Jesus is saying here that anything that that takes away from the business of God, that hinders the things of God, is satanic. Specifically, and especially here, the call of Jesus. Peter is setting his mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, look at verse 24. Jesus It's almost like he's standing there talking to Peter. He's just rebuked him and then he turns to the disciples as he's talking to them there. And he says to the disciples, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, the reality is, is at that time, many people wanted to follow Jesus. Why? Because he was a miracle worker. He was a great teacher. They listened to him and they said, he, he's different than the, than the religious leaders that we hear. He's different. They wanted to follow him. But most wanted to do it on their own terms. And I'm certain, to be honest with you, that probably not much has changed today. So therefore, Jesus here makes clear his terms. He says, first of all, we are to deny the self. The verb deny here is emphatic. It means to deny utterly. As a matter of fact, I actually like the Net Bible translation much better here as it shows the emphatic nature of the verb. It translates it this way. He must deny himself. Not let him deny himself, but he must. 
deny himself. And that's the emphatic nature of the verb. The verb is reserved to convey only the most conclusive denial. It means to renounce your yearning to possess, your desire for power, your desire for the approval of men, to renounce the seeking of human glory for the sake of following Jesus and seeking His kingdom. Second, we're to take up our cross. So we not only deny, but we take up our cross. That's what he says here. These verbs are continual here. Take up your cross. Now understand, he doesn't say, take up my cross. He doesn't say that. He says, take up your cross. By this, he means we must be ready to bear Affliction in this life, knowing that God has prepared that affliction and knowing that God uses that affliction as fatherly discipline to conform us into the image of Christ. So we are to be prepared to endure that tribulation and endure those trials. But more than this, we must be ready to embrace them, to take them up. It's not only that we may endure it, but As his disciples, we must be ready to embrace it. Be prepared to take that affliction, that fatherly discipline, as being conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Finally here, he says, we are to follow him. William Hendrickson sheds light here. He says that one who follows Christ by trusting in him walking in His footsteps, obeying His commandments, out of gratitude for salvation through Him, and being willing even to suffer in His cause. So we are to look to Jesus, to follow Him in His obedience and example, to imitate Him, and to continue that through life, no matter what comes at us. Remember, um, uh, I mean, Richie mentioned this, I mentioned this, just the people in our age that have been uh, famous ministers of the gospel turning away. If they don't repent, what Jesus says of them is this, they were never one of us. Jesus' desire is for His disciples to follow Him to the end. And so as we go again in obedience, looking at His example, imitating Him through whatever trials and tribulations or temptations may come our way. Duncan frames this another way. He says, Jesus' words in verse 24 could be translated like this. If anyone wishes to be counted as an adherent of mine, he must once and for all say farewell to self. Decisively accept pain, shame, and persecution for my sake and in my cause. And must then follow and keep on following me as my disciple. That's what we are called to do. To deny, to pick up our cross, and to follow Him. But Jesus doesn't stop here. Because He really wants to drive it home. He really wants His disciples. He wants us to understand. That's why it's recorded for us. So so He clarifies this even further. Look at verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It was uh, from 2004 to actually 2016, and I can't believe that show ran so long, but it did. A show ran on NBC called The Biggest Loser. Now, if you remember The Biggest Loser, it was about people who were uh, you know, hugely um, obese, and they would be gathered together, and they would have a personal coach, and then they would compete with one another as to who could get in better shape and who could lose more weight. And so the idea was to drop the weight, and it was a competition to see who would come out as the biggest loser. Well, uh, during that time, one of my favorite youth camps that we did in youth ministry was based on the title of this show. The theme was, and I have the t-shirt still somewhere, it's probably old and ratty, I might have actually thrown it away, but it's called The Loser Family Reunion. I love that. I love that t-shirt because it's just so weird wearing a t-shirt called The Loser Family Reunion. So the text that we focused on in, in, in that camp, the text that the speaker focused on, was this particular text. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the speaker spoke of all the ways in the world's eyes in which we as Christians look like losers. How do we look like losers? By not taking advantage of a certain situation. By telling the truth when it would uh, benefit us to lie for our advantage. One, uh, maybe taking advantage of someone else's spouse for our advantage. You see, the list goes on and on and on and on. But the reality is portrayed by the words of the British journalist Bernard Levin. He wasn't even a Christian. But, but here in this in this quote, he's, he's scratching on the edge of it. You'll hear it. Listen to what he says. Countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire. Together with such non-material blessings as a happy family. And yet lead lives of quiet and at times noisy desperation. Understanding nothing but the fact that there is a hole inside them. And that however much food and drink they pour into it, however many cars and television sets they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends they parade around the edges of it, it aches. C.S. Lewis said something very similar. Hundreds of years before Lewis and, and Levin, Augustine said the same thing. Augustine, a man who, who lived and took and ate and did whatever he wanted, took women whenever he wanted them, had it all, said, I have an empty hole in my heart and there's nothing that can fill it. Nothing that can fill it but God. Isn't that true? Isn't it true of our country, of our nation, the people we work with, that we play with, that we live next door to? We have never had so much. I mean, think about it. When you look at history, we have never had so much. And yet, we live in a land, a world, 
littered with soulless individuals, ever sinking, ever taking, never finding. What is it that they're missing? What is it that they're missing? Look at the text, 26, our question. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Do you see why King Jesus' question is so incredibly important? It is the question of divine eternal truth. While following Him might look like losing to the world, the reality is that it is the world that will ultimately lose. Jesus is asking us who profess faith, who are saved by grace, are you all in? Or are you enthralled by the stuff of earth? The stuff of self? He is saying, consider the cost. Consider the cost of following me. Now we must understand that self-denial does not imply self-abuse. It in no way um, implies a lack of self-esteem. I mean, I want you to think about it for just a moment. As Jesus' disciples, we should have a better self-image than any other people that we know. But it should be based on God's grace and not merit. And that's what this is. This is not what this is. not about merit. Self-denial means putting God in His kingdom priorities first. When this world and the self is our true investment, we must ask, what will it profit us? Jesus says no temporal gain can compare to the loss of your soul. You see, whatever we commit ourselves to now, whatever our actions reveal that we are involved in now, that is what we're living for. That is what we are pouring our souls into. If we pour our souls into the world, we will lose it. If we pour our souls into the Lord, we will gain it. We will reap an investment in the end that is unbelievable. Look at Jesus' words, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. We read this sometimes, and, and, and we read that from the standpoint of all His judgment, but that's not what He's talking about here. Here, he, he is pointing out that there is a coming return of investment, one like you have never seen before. I will come in my glory, and I will repay each person according to what He's done. That's how He's communicating this. You will receive a glorious reward. Jim Elliot knew this. Even before he went to that beach in South America with those other missionaries to reach a, a people group that had never been reached before, 
And he died at the hands of her, their spears. Jim Elliot wrote these famous words that you've heard again and again. And they are so true. It's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Do you realize that Jim is in heaven right now with the Lord? Can you imagine the reward? Can you imagine that one of the men who killed him who died just a few years ago is now in heaven with him? He is no fool. He gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Brothers and sisters, by what investment will you reap a return? Do you truly value your soul in the way Jesus does? Do you really and truly believe that the rewards that you receive are worth having? Or are you satisfied with the trinkets and the little toys of this age? Where is your treasure? That is the question that Jesus is pressing into our hearts today. Where is your treasure? I wonder, how will we answer that question? What I want you to do is to spend this day and this week reflecting on your heart and how He may have you apply this truth, this question to your life. How will we answer it? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and mercy to us. The grace that you've given us in your word. What a beautiful and wonderful thing. What makes this even more glorious, Lord, is it's not something we work for. It's not how we earn heaven. It's not how we earn a relationship with you. It's a relationship that flows from us as we follow Jesus. It's good works that you have prepared ahead of time for us. And so, Lord, let us rejoice in this as grace and not as hardship, but grace. It's like being given a gift and just... Just saying, live and be free and love. Hardship's going to come. Things are going to be difficult. But in the end, I'll receive you with the greatest reward you've ever seen. What mystery, what joy. Thank you, Father, for bringing us into your story. For calling us to live in such a way that would glorify you. And in turn bless us so richly. Help us to understand that we have no idea how much you love us. How much you love our soul. Thank you. We pray these things. We ask for your help. In Jesus name. Amen.